Good to see everybody here this morning. Um, again, if you're joining us online, we're grateful that you're joining in uh, with us in virtual world, virtual land. So, good day to be together. And um, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the message this morning. And if you have your Bibles, uh, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. Uh, last week in our Revelation series, we began looking at the church in Philadelphia. And not the church in Philadelphia, PA, but uh, the church in the ancient city of Philadelphia that was located in Asia Minor back then, and today is located in what is known as modern-day Turkey. And so we're still in the section of the book of Revelation that is known as the seven letters to the seven churches. Last week, we looked at verses 7 through 12 in chapter 3 in regards to the church in Philadelphia. We're going to look again at the church of Philadelphia today. We're going to look at verses 12 through 13. And um, next week, we're going to look at one more church in regards to the seven letters to the seven churches before we get into all that good stuff in regards to the book of Revelation. Um, this was kind of funny. This past week, I had a friend of mine who is not a part of our church but is following along through the series through our Facebook page. And so they sent me a Facebook message saying, Todd, I've really been enjoying the series on Revelation, but dude, when are we going to get into all that good stuff? When are we going to start talking about 666 and, and, and the mark of the beast and who is the beast and Armageddon? And, and when are we going to get into all that good stuff? Well, if you're watching, you know who you are. So two more weeks. One Sunday, next Sunday, one more church, and then after that, we're going to get into all that juicy good stuff. So, so two more weeks before we get into that. But again, we're going to wrap up looking at the church in Philadelphia. So if you will, if you have your Bibles at home, if you have your Bibles with you, if not, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, again, Revelation chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And again, this is Jesus speaking to the church in Philadelphia. It says this, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. He goes on. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you will, pray along here with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together, uh, whether here in person or online, uh, to engage your word. And Father, I pray that as we engage your word, we would engage you and engage your presence in your spirit. And as we read these words, Father, I pray that you would help them to become what they are. They, they are more than just words on the page. These are actually the very words of Jesus, the Son of God. And so I pray that these words, that it is your word does, has the power to penetrate and to change and to transform. And I pray that again, as we engage your word and what's being said here, what you were saying to us, not only the church in Philadelphia some 2,000 years ago, but also us here today, that by power, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that Jesus, that you would transform us and change us. And that we would encounter you. And we love you and we thank you and we pray these things in the name of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, the Bible is quite remarkable in many ways 
And one of the ways the Bible is very remarkable is that it has the power, it has the capacity to reverse and to overcome the, the misinterpretations that we have about who we are. The Word of God has the power to overcome the, the, the misunderstandings and the misinterpretations about our identities. And I suspect there's quite a few of us here this morning, uh, either here in the sanctuary or watching online at home, who would identify, you would identify yourself, if I could put it this way, but you would identify yourself as being a spiritual orphan. In the sense that, that you just don't feel like you belong. Maybe, in fact, you have felt that way your entire life, to where you have felt like you have not belonged anywhere. Maybe you felt like you didn't belong to your biological family or you didn't belong uh, to your peer group or, or even, you know, to a church. But the word of God says that if you know Jesus Christ, if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are an adopted child of God. That is who you are. You may not feel that way, but that is who you are this morning. You are not an orphan, but rather you are an adopted, beloved child of the God of the universe. Yeah. And then maybe some of us, some of the others of us, you know, you, maybe you're struggling here this morning, you, you know, with sensations and feelings of guilt or shame over things that you have said or things that you have done. And as a result, it has served as a force to shape the sense of who you are and how you see yourself. But God says to you this morning, he says, you are forgiven. Maybe you feel stained. Maybe you feel dirty. Maybe you feel tainted, you know, by sin. And yet scripture says that because of faith in Jesus when a person does that, that means that every single sin that you have committed, every single sin that has been that you will ever commit, all of that has been cleansed, all of that has been removed. And it, not only that, but you are also now clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ here this morning, you are either one righteous dude or one righteous dudette because of him. Amen. Now, folks, I, I'm not advocating some sort of mind game here. Right? I, I'm not advocating some type of psychological trick to where here in a few moments you and I are just going to recite some truths about who we are in Jesus and we just say and say those things over and over again. Don't get me wrong. I think that there is some value and that we need to oftentimes speak out about who we are. But it's more than that, folks. I am talking about reality. I'm talking about the reality of who you are and who I am in the person of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the big tragedies that is facing the modern church today is that there are a plethora of Christians who don't know who they are. They don't know who they are. And while, you know, yes, they may very well be genuine believers, they're going to go to heaven when they die. But their faith is just another addition in their portfolio, if you will. And when it comes to the bottom line, they define themselves no different than others do out in the world. 
to where they, they define themselves by, you know, the kind of job that they have or the kind of job that they do not have and wish that they had or the kind of possessions that they own or the possessions that they wish they had or the kind of people that they associate themselves with. Folks, if someone were to come up to you tomorrow and say, who are you? I'm being very honest. Who, who are you? What, what makes you tick? What, where, where do you get your, your value? Where do you get your sense of worth from? Who are you? And folks, if, if Jesus is not brought up in the course of such a conversation, I mean no disrespect with this, but you would be a confused Christian. And the reason for that is because as a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, your identity and my identity is tied to Him. Amen. There should never be a conversation that, that arises to where the ultimate you know, conversation or who are you, that, that, that such a conversation arises that you do not talk about Him and who you are in Him. And in the verses that we just read in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus tells not only the church in Philadelphia some 2,000 years ago, but he also tells us here today at Gate City Vineyard Church in 2020, he tells us who we are in him. The first thing that Jesus tells us in this passage about in regards to who we are is that he says that we are a pillar in the temple of God. If you're watching from home, how about typing in, I'm a pillar. In fact, how about we all say that out loud together here? One, two, three. I'm a pillar. You are a pillar in the temple of God. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? That, that you and I are a pillar in God's temple. Well, what I think Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is saying in that regards, is that he is using metaphoric and symbolic language to describe a reality and a truth about our security in our relationship with him. And he's talking about the security of our salvation. And you may be, well, where did you get that from? Did you not notice what he said? Put that next slide up there. Put that. Go ahead. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Never again will they leave it. Now again, let's keep in mind, let's not forget that the, the seven letters to the seven churches was written to seven historical churches that were facing persecution because of their faith. And for those Christians, those believers that weren't martyred, and again, many were, but for those who did not lose their life because of their faith in Jesus, that does not mean that they did not suffer through other forms of persecution. In fact, they did. For those who did not lose their lives, they were still often mocked and made fun of because of their faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of them also were, they, they, they weren't allowed to do business. 
And what I mean by that is this, is that when people in the, the surrounding community or the cities that the churches were a part of, if they found out that there were Christians involved or, oh, you're one of those Jesus followers, well, you know what, I'm not going to do business with you. I'm not going to sell you food, or I'm not going to sell you clothing. You're, you're going to have to go find somebody else who's willing to do that, because you Christians, I, I just don't want to do business with you. And so they were oftentimes, you know, marginalized, you know, pushed to the margins of society, and sometimes they were even driven out of the very cities that they lived in. And this was true for many of the believers in Philadelphia, but Jesus says to them, you know, listen, that's all right. It's all right because you need to understand who you are and you are a pillar in the temple of God and in God's temple, in God's place, in his family, in his kingdom, you will never be driven out. You will never be cast aside. Another thing about this church in regards to pillars and the connection there that we need to understand is this, is that the lands surrounding the church around the area in Philadelphia, they were constantly struck by earthquakes. In fact, before the book of Revelation was written back in AD 17, the entire city was destroyed by an earthquake, just leveling almost all of the buildings, bringing them down to, to basically dust. And then even after that, that catastrophic earthquake, the region still experienced earthquakes on a consistent basis, and there was constant earthquake damage that was going on. And as a result, the people would oftentimes have to flee outside of the city, and they would build shacks or huts outside of the region living in such areas. You know, because, you know, they don't want a building coming crashing down on top of them, so they would have to leave. But Jesus says, listen, he says, let me tell you something. When the new Jerusalem comes to the renewed and the restored earth, you will permanently be a resident. You will never have to flee or scatter as a result ever again. Now, if you're like me, that all sounds great. I love the way that sounds, but at first hearing, being called a pillar doesn't really sound all that sexy. It just doesn't sound all that exciting. It doesn't sound all that, you know, appealing. I'm a pillar. Okay, great. But wait, there's more. There's more. A lot of the metaphoric and symbolic language that you see all throughout the book of Revelation is connected greatly to the Old Testament. And one of the primary ways that you and I figure out how to you know, understand all of the vivid language that we see throughout the book of Revelation, we're just getting started, is that they're oftentimes answered by looking at other passages throughout the Old Testament. And the same is true here in regards to being a pillar. What I mean by that is this. Is for example, we read this in Psalm 144, if you want to put that next slide, that next scripture up. Our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. 
So the point being here is this, is that being a pillar is not just simply meant to, to uphold the roof or the ceiling of something. It's not just a practical matter that's being described here in Revelation, what Jesus is saying. Now folks, I love our building. We, we are very blessed to have a good-looking building here. And we've been very blessed that we were, we were able to purchase it over the past year. So I love our building, but you know what, folks? There are two things that I absolutely hate about our building. Would anybody like to take a guess what those two things are? These two things right here. If you're watching from home, you may not be able to see it. But, you know, if you've ever been to our church before in the sanctuary, you know, kind of like, and they're not really centered, but we have two big pillars, two big columns, you know, right in the sanctuary. And they have two things that they, that they really do as far as serving in the purpose. And, and yes, these two columns right here, they serve a purpose of holding up the roof and the ceiling so that while we're in here, the roof doesn't come crashing down upon us. But at the same time, depending upon where you're sitting, especially, you know, before COVID-19, the pandemic, when we had more of our people in here, depending upon where you sat, these two things right here also could obstruct your view. In fact, I remember when we first moved into the building, and this is before, you know, we, you know, we were still renting the building. We would joke about painting on the backside of these columns. So if you were, you know, happened to be wherever you sat, you, you, you would be obstructed. You know, we, we joked about painting 2 Corinthians 5, 7 on the back of the columns that said, you walk by faith and not by sight. <laughs> But, but again, the, these two columns here, they, they don't serve, you know, so much of a purpose as to just, you know, keep the roof from falling down. But again, what I think we are being told here is that you and I being pillars in God's temple is that we're not simply here to serve some load-bearing function. But even more importantly, you and I are here and there and a part of God's presence in his temple to adorn it, to beautify it, right? It, it, it is the beauty of a, a, a pillar that, that, that focuses on, you know, the, the greatness of, of its creator. It's very interesting. I, I, I've never been there, but if you put that next slide up, this is a picture. And this is actually, this is from a church. It's an ancient church. This is not the actual church in Philadelphia from back in the day. But this is one of many churches throughout that region around the area of Philadelphia that were built up after the church of Philadelphia, you know, came and, and, and went or went into other different churches there. And so if you look at this thing, look at it. You can look at it, and by the way, it looks... And tell that its purpose is not simply just to uphold the roof. Look at all that ornate color and artwork. Look, look at all that, that masterful carving into the marble. I mean, it's actually a, a work of art. It's actually something that, that, that's quite beautiful. 
And people will tell you that when these churches were constructed in this way, that these columns, yes, they were built to help support the roof and the structure. But the main thing of why they were doing that was to attract and, and, and to create a sense of awe and wonder in people to say, oh my gosh, can you imagine who created that? This is beautiful. This, this is breathtaking. Can you imagine the greatness and the goodness and the splendor and the creative power of the one who constructed such things in there? And folks, that's what's being said here. This is what Jesus is saying when he is saying that you and I are pillars in the very temple of God. He is saying that you are a work of beauty and you are a work of adornment. You may be sitting here this morning and you may be thinking, you know what, I feel so ugly. I don't see myself as being something, as being beautiful or something that would adorn God's presence. But folks, that is a lie. Yeah. You don't have to take my word for it. Take Jesus' word for it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, is that you are a work of art, that you are a work of beauty, even if you don't feel like it. Even if you feel like, well, I just don't do enough to, to feel that way. I, I feel like I have to earn a sense of beauty. Folks, so often we think in the church that, that our usefulness is what seems to matter. If I can teach a Bible study, if, if, if I can get up on the stage and, and sing and be a part of the worship band, if I can do something that's practical, well, well then, then that will somehow signal to me that I am valuable and that I am worth something. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about what you do. It's about what he has done and who he has made you to be. And Jesus says, listen, you are a beautiful pillar in the temple of God. That's who you are. That's who I made you to be. An object of adornment and an object of beauty. And folks, listen, I know, I get this. I know how hard of a struggle the whole issue of identity is. This is something we all struggle with, if we're honest. We all struggle to, to see ourselves in the sense of who, how God sees us and how God created us to be. And folks, the remedy is not to pull out your birth certificate or your license and say, see, Todd, this is who I am. I'm John Smith. Or I'm Bill Thompson. Or I'm Gina Phillips. Yes, that, that's part of who you are. But ultimately, that's not who you are. You are ultimately who God says you are. And you are someone who has been created in the very image of God. You are someone who Jesus willingly spilled his blood for to remove and to cleanse you of your sin. And Jesus is saying, not only that, but I have also made you a pillar in the temple of God, the temple being where God chooses to dwell. We know this in other passages of the scripture. You're not only the temple, or you're not only the pillar in God's temple, you are actually the very temple 
in which the spirit and the presence of God chooses to dwell in. The God of the universe who is absolutely perfect chooses to dwell in knuckleheads like you and me. How valuable you are. And that doesn't bother God in the least to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to take up my very presence and my residence in your physical bodies. Amen. Folks, one of the big things that I have learned over the past three years of being a pastor, whether that being a youth pastor and working with youth, whether that be an associate pastor or, or a, you know, a senior pastor, is that so many of us human beings base our identity on failure. Whether that be our own failures or the failures of others towards us, we so often, and it's so easy to base our identity and our value and self-worth on failure, but folks, in God's kingdom, our identity is not based upon failure, but rather it is based upon forgiveness. And folks, when God forgives us, he doesn't do it begrudgingly. Well, have to. Oh, God wants to. The heart of God. Our, our identity is based on our Heavenly Father's goodness and not our own goodness based upon him. In fact, how about we say this all out loud together if you want to type this in the comment section below on the Facebook page. But let's say this out loud together. Just follow what I say. One, two, three. I am, I am who he says. Who he says I am. I am. Who are you this morning? You are who God says you are. You may want to wrestle with him. You may want to argue with him. You may disagree with him. But ultimately, who are you? You are who God says you are. Doesn't matter what your biological mom or your biological dad said about you or your ex-wife or your spouse or your kids. You are ultimately who God says you are. Not by virtue of what you have done or said, but by virtue of what he has done. Let's keep going. What's your name this morning? Who are you? Nora. <laughs> That's right. What was the name that your parents gave you? Who are you? Ed. Ed who? Stafford. Ed Stafford. Who are you? Michelle, who are you? Chris Larson. Okay. Well, guess what? You're going to get three more names. You get three new names. Let's keep going. Jesus goes on to say this. Next slide. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my 
God. I will write on them. Now let me say this. When Jesus says, I will, don't let the future tense there get you. Yeah, when he says, I will do these things, I will write on you three new names. Don't let the future tense fool you. And if you've been a part of the vineyard long enough, you'll know why I say that. It's because in the vineyard, we, we recognize and we acknowledge and we wrestle through that, that tension, that New Testament theology that we call in the vineyard, the already and the not yet. And what that simply means is when you read throughout the book, when you read throughout the New Testament, you see this tension that there are certain things that we already have, that we already experience in the here and the now. But there are still certain things that are still ours that we still possess that are not quite yet, that we may not experience or fully experience until Jesus returns. And what we just read is a great example of the already and the not yet. You're sitting here this morning and, you know, you may be going, well, wait a minute, I don't see any of these three names written on me. You still already have them, but this is, again, again, part of the intention of the already and the not yet. You already have these three names, but some of that is still yet to come. There's still a fulfillment. Now, let me say this. When Jesus says about these new names, to be given a new name is not to necessarily just change your name from Bill Smith to, well, I like the name Tom better. So that's not what he's saying. Jesus is talking about us being given a new name based upon how God is transforming us and changing us into the image of his very son. He is changing our character. He is changing our very being. And so these new names that he is talking about that we are one day, that we have right now, but we're really going to experience in his fullness when Jesus returns, they are going to fit the character and the mold that Jesus is fashioning us into right here and right now. So it's more than just a simple name change. It's going to be directly related to how God is changing you and making you new and renewing you. I love this passage in Numbers that most of us are familiar with. If you want to put that next slide up there. Keep going. We're very familiar with this passage, especially we hear it as a benediction oftentimes at the end of the service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face forward toward you and give you peace. And so often we stop right there. And it goes on to say, so they will put my name, the name of God on the Israelites, the people of God, and I will bless them. Amen. Well, folks, I, I, I want to stop here just for a second. I want us to pause and just, just take a breath and, and to really contemplate what, what's being said here and let this take root in your soul and in your spirit and the depths of who you are. And folks, this, this isn't about earning it. This is about with the help of God, 
to help us to, to receive this and to see it, see it. So much of our time, we spend so much of our time and our energy trying to earn our value and our worth, trying to approve or improve our public image, or working and striving to overcome the damage and the pain that has been inflicted upon us from other people. We try to earn it, we try to, we try to make, work through it and wrestle through it. But Jesus is saying here in Revelation 3, he's almost saying, listen, just stop. Stop all of that. Stop all of that nonsense of trying to go around and trying to earn and work for people's approval. And just take a moment in the pause to really grasp what it is that I am saying to you. Again, God says that you are his temple and that you are beautiful, ornate, pillar in his temple. And Jesus says, listen, one of the ways that I'm going to show you that I'm going to prove that to you is that God is going to write his very name on you. And, and it's as if as God is saying, let me tattoo myself on you and in you and to you. And folks, if you know anything about tattoos, that means it's this. You don't ever get a tattoo on your body, especially the name of somebody on your body, unless that person means something to you. Right? There's a sense of connection. And again, part of what Jesus is saying here is that, listen, you're going to get three names. God is going to, you know, give you a, his new name is going to be placed on you. You're going to get the name of the new Jerusalem. And then I'm also going to put my new name on you. A lot of what's being said here is a sense of, of, of connection in, in ownership, not ownership, or ownership in the sense that you're a slave, but look, you're mine. Like when, again, when you get the name of somebody tattooed on your body, look, I am saying you are mine and I am yours. The sense of, of value. And so Jesus goes on after saying, you know, hey, God the Father, I'm going to place the name of God the Father on you. And then he goes on to say that also the, the name of the new Jerusalem is going to be placed upon you. And what's very interesting, and we'll get there in a few weeks, but when you get to Revelation chapter 21, Jesus doesn't mention about the name of the new Jerusalem being you know, written on you. In fact, what he says about God's people is that you, in fact, are the new Jerusalem. Not only are you going to have the name of it on you, but you, in fact, are this new place that's coming down one day out of heaven and will come to the renewed earth. It is a sense of community. It is a belonging. It is a people. You, in fact, are going to be the very place. Again, there's a connection to the temple, New Jerusalem, place of dwelling. You are going to be the place where God dwells for all of eternity. This is part of who you are. Eternal dwelling place of God. You are, in fact, that old, new Jerusalem. That's who you are. 
And then Jesus goes on to say that we're going to bear his new name. Now you may think, wait, well, Jesus is going to get a new name. That's exactly what he's saying here. I will put my new name on you. This past week, my eight-year-old daughter, Grayson, we, as I was preparing for this, and I was reading this to her, and I said, Grayson, what do you think Jesus' new name is going to be? And she said, will it be John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt? His name is my name, too. I said, no, I, I have a feeling that's not going to be his new name. And she said, how about Rumpelstiltskin? But in the Greek, this reads, my name, the new. My name, the new. And again, what this is describing here is that Jesus' new name, it's going to reflect the change in the newness of the new heaven and the new earth that will come to planet earth, that we will dwell in. What is Jesus' new name going to be? I have no idea. I can almost guarantee you it's not going to be Rumpelstiltskin or John Jacob Schmidt. But there's going to be a new name that he is going to have that is going to be written upon us that will reflect his love and his goodness and his character and all of this newness that he has already begun to set into motion and will one day come into fruition when he returns. Folks, here's something to consider here. And this is one thing we may not see it with this new name thing. I think sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to go to heaven, I'm going to live for eternity. Oh, what are we going to do? It's going to be boring. No, it's not. No. One of the things that we see with all these new names is it's describing all of this newness, all of these incredible new experiences and learning that we are going to experience when heaven comes completely to earth. And one of the new things that we're going to experience is we're going to discover what this new name is of who Jesus and what this new name is going to be. So I've, I've kind of sped through some of these things, or sped through these things. Let me, let me wrap things up this morning with this, with an illustration with what I've just said. So most of you guys know that I lived in San Diego for a couple of years, lived in San Diego before I lived in Los Angeles. And if you've ever been to San Diego, I know you have. I know Chris Larson has several times. But if you've ever been to San Diego, you know, San Diego is right on the border of Mexico. It's right on the border of Tijuana. And Tijuana, if you've ever been there, it's, it's, it's quite depressing. I mean, you go from, you know, multi-million dollar homes in, in San Diego, and you go right across the border, and then you're literally in like a third world country. And there's poverty. I mean, if you're taking like what they call the San Diego trolley, most people do, whatever. I went down there, that's what I do. It's like the San Diego light rail. You can take it all the way down to the U.S.-Mexican border. You can hop off, right, walk right across into Tijuana. And as you're approaching, you know, as you're, you know, going from San Diego into the border, you can see the mesas. And you can see the, you know, the flag of Mexico flying. And then you can see all the thousands of like shanties or shacks that are built on the sides of the hill in, in Tijuana. And then when you get off and you go into Tijuana, there's all, there, part of it's really cool too. I mean, there's all these like street merchants and, and you know, you can buy really cool stuff. But the thing that's really depressing is you see a lot of homeless people. In fact, a majority of those homeless people 
our kids. I mean, you'll see, I'm, I'm not kidding, I've seen kids as young as five, six, seven years old out on the street. And they're begging, they're begging for money. Sometimes their parents are drug addicts and they put their kids out on the street to beg for money so they can you know, feed their habit. Or sometimes they don't have a mom and dad, they're, they're orphaned and they're begging for money so that they can eat. It's not just one or two or three. I mean, there's thousands of kids in that scenario and it, it breaks your heart. And I remember the first time that I went down to Tijuana, my friends were saying, and I went down there by myself, and I remember my friends saying, listen, Todd, don't give anybody any money. And they said, well, why not? I said, just, just don't. Just don't. I said, okay. So I go down there, and, and I, the first 10, 15 minutes that I was there, I had like a five or six, seven-year-old kid come up to me. And, you know, he called me Billy. At that time, I had bleach blonde, spiky hair. I don't know if he thought I was like Billy Idol or whatever, but he's like, Billy, can you give me some money? And I remember what my friends said, don't do it, but it, oh, the, your heart just wrenches. And so I said, sure. So I pointed out my pocket and I gave a $10 bill. Five minutes later, that one kid turned into 50 kids. And they kept chasing me down the street saying, hey, Billy, give me some money. Can you give me some money? And obviously I didn't have enough money to, to give to all the kids there. But let's say that I had chosen to take one of those kids home, or even a couple of them. And I said, you know what? I'm going to adopt you as my own. You are now going to be my son, my daughter, or both. You're coming home, me. Now, folks, it would not surprise me in the least if the next day after that I took them to the supermarket. It would not surprise me in the least if I saw them trying to stuff Fruit Loops in their, you know, their, their pockets or try to pickpocket, you know, people in the checkout line and put money, you know, in their pocket. It would not surprise me in the least if they were to do that. And folks, they probably would not change until they realized and understood and took to heart that is not who you are. You are mine. You are my child, you are my son, and you are my daughter, and you no longer have to live that any that way anymore because that's not who you are. My name is your name. And all that I am and all that I have belongs to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you this morning for your goodness. 
We thank you that our acceptance and our approval and our value and our worth is not based upon anything that we've said or what we've done. It's just based upon you and, and just who you are and your character and your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy towards us and your desire to have us be your sons and to be your daughters and to be in your family. And Father, I just pray right now in these moments as we sing one more song, and even after that, Father, I just pray that you would just help us throughout the day, and, and we, we need to do this on a regular basis, just to, just to think about and to focus on who we are in you. Because regardless of what it is or what we think about ourselves or, or what we feel about ourselves, who we are is ultimately who you say that we are. You say that every single person in this room, every single person that is watching from home, that they are absolutely priceless, that they are absolutely valuable. And how do we know this? One of the ways that we know this is because we have all been created in the very image of God. And that same God whose image that we have been created in, when we all ran away and we all wanted to go and do our own things, He came after us. He pursued us. He said, you, you may want to leave my house, but guess what? I'm coming after you to bring you back home. Because I want you to be with me. And Father, we thank you for that kind of love, that kind of pursuit. And Father, I just pray, whatever it is that we're thinking, whatever it is that we're feeling about ourselves here this morning, if those thoughts and those feelings do not line up with who you say that we are in you, I just pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would just remove such lies and such feelings, and that God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would just pour out your truth about who we are in you. If we're feeling unlovable here this morning, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would pour out your love towards us and just show us how much you love us. Father, for feeling guilty over things that we have said or done in the past or that have been done to us, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to realize, not just in our heads, but in the very depths of our being, that our identity is not based upon failure, but it is based upon forgiveness in your grace in your goodness. Help us to see ourselves as ornate objects of beauty. That we have been created as vessels for your very presence to dwell in. Not only in the here and now, but throughout all time and throughout all eternity. Help us to see that even though we may not have felt like we belong to our biological family or our friends, that we belong to you. Your name is actually going to be placed upon us. And we are that very dwelling place, the new Jerusalem, that you will dwell in forever and ever with us. We do belong. We have a Father who loves us. We're not orphans here this morning. We are your beloved sons and daughters. We have a family. And you're
your kingdom. So, Father, I just pray that as we sing this last song, as we proclaim your goodness, again, Holy Spirit, just pour out your spirit, whether we're singing from home or singing in here. Help us to sense your, your, your connecting and loving and bridging spirit that we're all a part of your family. Help us to feel that connection in you. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said. Yeah. Stay in worship.